Romans chapter 6 for our time in God's Word. Romans chapter 6, if you have a copy of Scripture, and we'll just read a couple of verses here at the beginning, and then we'll pray, ask God to bless our study time, and uh, then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what it is that we're doing this morning, and what it is that we do every time we have a baptism opportunity within our midst as a church family. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul is writing this letter to the Roman church, and he's discussing um, the perspective of the Roman church towards sin and grace. Uh, A lot of questions asked by Paul as hypotheticals that he then answers for his argument. And that's what we find at the very beginning of Romans chapter 6, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we sin as much as we want because grace is free and unmeasured, as we sang this morning? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the next few moments that we have together as a church family and as friends who have gathered with us this morning. We do desire for this time to inform our thinking, to renew our minds, to shape our desires and our perspectives, to mold us so that our character looks more like your son than before we walked into this meeting time together. But even beyond the desire for the benefit that will come to us through this time, we desire for our attention to your word, our our focus upon you, our dependence upon your spirit, who helps us as we spend time in your word and under the preaching of your word. We want all of these things to be for your glory, for your character and for your wonder and majesty to be exposed freshly for us this morning. We want you to receive from this time as we set aside whatever may be crowding into our thinking, whatever distractions might be upon us to give our attention to You. We want to hear from You. And You have spoken to us this morning through Your Word. So open our ears freshly to hear this good news of Gospel truth. Renew our thoughts so that we might not live our lives as if we have not died to sin. May we not live as if we have not been granted newness of life. And may we celebrate, those of us who are here in Christ, may we celebrate with all of the fullness of what will be testified, confessed, and what we will view in the baptism for Phil Reyes this morning. All of this we desire for your glory first and for the good of our existence as your people here on the mission for you to spread the fame of your glorious name in our community and to the nations. And so we ask you to do these things because you alone have the power to accomplish these things. And because we're confident they're in keeping with what you want for this morning, we pray them in faith and in confidence. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
Well, we are obviously not Grace Baptist Church, but we are, as Grace Church of the Valley, Baptistic in our theology. And perhaps that means very little to you, but it means a whole lot when it's taken in the scope of church history. We are Baptistic in so much as we are convinced that the New Testament teaches, as we'll talk about in just a moment, that baptism is reserved for those who are in Christ, who have been granted what we've just read about in Romans chapter 6. Water baptism is, under our conviction and our belief of the New Testament, is only for those who have this testimony of Romans chapter 6. And perhaps because we read this passage and in light of the circumstances of today, it's easy for you to read here and see the word baptized and baptize into and be thinking this revolves around water baptism. In fact, Romans 6 is not about water baptism, but is the very picture that water baptism depicts. So for our time of study this morning, I just want to answer a few questions uh, for us. I want us to renew our thinking about what's happening in baptism. The truth of the matter, the big idea, the umbrella theme this morning is that baptism is a Christ-commanded ordinance for our church. Baptism is not a negotiable issue. It's a Christ-commanded ordinance, or it's something Christ commands for His church. There are only two ordinances that we are aggressively to be carrying out as a church family. The first is baptism. The second is the Lord's Supper, which we take at least twice a month together and receive uh, in our unity in Christ. So baptism is one of two Christ-commanded ordinances for His church. And I want to briefly work through four questions that answer, or the Scripture answers about baptism to try to set the, set the tone for uh, the bulk of our time of study from Romans chapter 6. First question is, why? Why baptism? Why do we do what we're about to do in just a few minutes out at the pool, why do we do this? What is the motivation for baptism? The motivation for baptism is not just ritualistic and certainly is not mystic in so much as as Phil is dunked into the water, something is mystically happening to him. There is no zap that takes place the moment he goes under the water. I hope not. Uh, Certainly not from the skies, I hope. And spiritually speaking, there is no mystic experience involved with baptism. The why question finds its answer in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then this consequent idea, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, in the early church, we find the early church obeying this command from Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 18, we find illustration after illustration of the call to repentance and baptism and the experience of people coming to faith in Christ and then obeying the Lord Jesus' command and being baptized. Now, baptism accomplishes a lot of things. It's a, it's a public testimony, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's a picture, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it is first and foremost a command that is to be obeyed. So why do we partake in baptism? Why will we baptize today? Firstly, it is to obey 
what's been commanded of us by the Lord Jesus. Out of joy, we obey because we have been made righteous. We do not obey this command to earn favor with God. We obey this command because we've been granted favor with God through Jesus Christ. So this is not a work that leads to salvation. It is a work that flows from salvation. It is obedience that flows from a new heart that God has given. Obedience to God is never something that we can generate on our own. Philippians 2 reminds us in verses 12 and 13 that God is the one who is behind even our obedience, granting us both the desire and the doing of what brings Him good pleasure. So the why question is answered with obedience. Why are we doing what we're doing this morning? We're doing it, firstly, to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Second question that is important to our discussion and one that we'll come back to as we study and focus on the few verses in Romans chapter 6 is who? Who is baptized? So why baptism? Secondly, who receives baptism? And this is where there is difference within the body of Christ. There are differences of opinion and interpretation of the New Testament. But as we consider the biblical evidence, we are convinced that baptism is for believers, for Christians only, for those who have been granted new hearts. And I realize that that is potentially offensive within our culture. Our culture doesn't like anything that's exclusive. Um, We are tolerant in our culture, except for one case, and that is intolerance. We have no tolerance for intolerance. We have no inclusion for exclusivity. But baptism in the New Testament sense is commanded in an exclusive manner. And so, kind of like the clubhouse that says boys only, the path to the pool or the river or the body of water where we do baptism is, says Christians only. Um, the disciples were commanded and we're commanded, as we read in the Great Commission, to be baptizing new disciples. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, right after Peter had said, repent and believe, and repent and be baptized, we find this testimony, those who had received his word, in verse 41, were baptized. And this example carries on throughout Acts. Philip shows up to the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember this story in Acts chapter 8? There's this man in the middle of nowhere reading Isaiah. We don't know much about this story because the point of the story is that God relocates Philip to communicate the truth of what the man is reading, expose him to the glory of the gospel. This man receives Christ. He places his faith and confidence in the righteousness of Christ. And as they're riding along, there's a body of water, and they immediately stop, and he's baptized. That is testimony. As it goes throughout Acts, the testimony continues Even the jailer of Philippi, he and all his household, greatly rejoicing, having believed in God with his whole household, was baptized. So this testimony continues. Those who are believing are baptized. Those who have received the Spirit of God are baptized. So we conclude with Baptist theology when it comes to baptism. We conclude that baptism is limited to disciples, to believers, to those who have received the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. These different designations, they label the same person. It is for Christians. So therefore, all who have been baptized prior to conversion 
though that may be a traditional understanding, we believe in the New Testament, if we take these commands seriously and the illustrations of obedience to these commands, that rebaptism is appropriate for those who have been baptized prior to new hearts worked by the gospel of Christ. So why baptism in obedience? Who baptism? Christians only. Third question, what is baptism for? Why? Why, or why is this picture, what is this picture rather supposed to do for us as we stand around the pool? What's the message? It's a method of identification. What's going on in baptism, first and foremost, is obedient illustration or identification with the work of Christ. This identification is with Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection. That's exactly what we talked about from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, as we spoke of baptism into Christ. It's that picture that we find being lived out in the water of baptism. That's identification with the church. Later in Acts chapter 2, and verse 41, which we just read a moment ago, those who had received Christ, or rather the apostles' word, were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. So Pentecost is the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ, followed by identification and addition to the body of Christ. Now it's difficult in our culture to appreciate baptism. I mean, let's just be, let's just be frank. What we're going to go do, if we've grown up in the church, may be natural to us. Uh, we've seen maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people dunked in the water or had water poured over them or something happened and it's become familiar to us. But culturally speaking, taking someone out into a body of water, having them publicly confess what is true about Jesus Christ, and then another human being coming in and dunking them in the water and pulling them back up is a strange way to identify. We don't do baptism in any other scenario. You don't join the local country club by going to the pond on the 18th green, or right outside the 18th green, and dunked in, welcome to the country club, we're glad that you've joined. You don't join teams this way. You don't join any kind of scenario in our modern culture through baptism. But the Jews, the Jews understood this culturally. This is borrowed from the Jewish, the Jewish baptism of Gentiles those who understood that Yahweh was God, those of the nations who wanted to worship and desired to worship the one true God with Israel, were baptized. Not only were they baptized on a national level, but we remember John the Baptist baptizing. John the Baptist was not baptizing people as we'll baptize Phil today. He was baptizing Jewish people under the Old Covenant under Mosaic law, old, old covenant Jewish people who were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And in anticipation of, of the coming of the Messiah, they were publicly identifying themselves as a part of the people serious about the Christ coming. And so they were baptized. That was a natural identification source. And so it only follows then that in the church... The command is for those who are redeemed, for those who believe, for those who repent and turn in faith, who have been granted new hearts, who have eyes open to the glory of Christ, for them to be baptized in identification with Christ. 
And the picture itself, the activity of baptism, is given an illustration. It's matched up with activities in the life of Christ. Colossians chapter 2 speaks of this in verse 12. And here we find the same picture laid out with the same language in Romans chapter 6. The final question is how? How do we baptize? So why do we baptize? Who do we baptize? What is baptism for? And then finally, how do we baptize? And this is the method for baptism that you'll see in just a few minutes. In just a few minutes, we'll walk out to the pool. I've never been to the pool. If it's only a deep end, this will be quicker than usual. There's a shallow end. We'll go into the shallow end. Um, Andy Muxlow, one of our pastoral team members, one of our elders, will go in with Phil. And uh, Phil, having publicly professed his faith in Christ before you here, will be dunked backwards. He'll simply sit down in the water. Andy will dunk him backwards and pull him back up out of the water, and he'll stand up. Now, why do we do that? How do we baptize, and why do we baptize in the method that we use for baptism? Well, it really goes back to our understanding of the word baptism. You hold in your lap, most of you, an English translation of a Greek New Testament. But there are words in your translation that are not translated. And if you don't know they're not translated, they become just such a fabric of your thinking that you, you don't even remember or know that these are words that are in fact not translated, they are transliterated. You know what that means, right? That means that a foreign language the sounds or the uh, letters that make up a foreign word are just transliterated into the, the language or the letters of our language. So, baptize is a Greek word. It's not translated. It's actually just written down in English. The, the Greek verb is baptizo. Spelled just like you would think it would be spelled because you've been reading it in English your whole life. Why is that the case? Well, the King James translators decided to stay out of the debate about the word baptism and about the method of baptism and about the timing of baptism and who baptism was for coming out of the crisis that arose within Reformed churches leaving the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. And so baptize was left untranslated or transliterated when the word baptize literally means to be engulfed in, to be immersed. That's very simply what the word means. And that's why we find it striking in Romans chapter 6 when the word baptize is used, but we can't find water anywhere in the paragraph. Because baptize or baptizo is not simply a water word. And it's not just a tradition. It's actually a verb that it means to be engulfed, to be covered in. And so we... We understand that the best method, though other methods may be used, may practically have to be used. Uh, if it was pouring hard enough, I suppose we could have put Phil outside and we all stand on the patio and wait, wait, wait. Yep, you look like you got it. Okay, good job, Phil. You've been immersed. You've been covered up in water by the pouring rain. We do believe that immersing, dunking, not only makes the best picture, but fits the word baptized most accurately. That's why they went to the Jordan River to baptize when John was baptizing. Because it made sense to go into a river that went up to your waist if you were to immerse one another 
in the water. Now, with that being said, let's go back to Romans chapter 6 and really with the insight of how we do baptism based upon the word baptize, let's read again what is being depicted in baptism. What is Phil testifying to as he is dunked backward into the water and then raised up out of the water and walks out of the pool? What is it that we are observing as he publicly identifies with the body of Christ? Well, let's read it. What shall we say then? Verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Here comes the testimony of what we'll see in the waters of baptism. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been engulfed in, immersed into Christ Jesus, were immersed into His death? If we are wrapped up in Christ, we have also been wrapped up in His death at the cross where He kills the power of sin. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, having Him substitute as our our surrogates in punishment. We are buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we might walk in the newness of life. So, brothers and sisters, this morning as we observe our brother Phil, publicly identified with the body of Christ, we are observing a testimony. We're going to hear a testimony. He's going to speak to us about the work of Christ in his life. And then we will watch a testimony as he is laid back under the water, brought out of the water. And the testimony and illustration will be that he has died with Christ. That he is covered in Christ, in Christ's death, Phil and you and I have received substitution and atonement. The blood of the cross, the anger and curse of the cross, the violence of the cross has has for us been applied. It's ours. We are engulfed, immersed in Christ. We are covered in Christ so that in His death, we've died. In His burial, we've been buried. And in His resurrection, we live. And perhaps this morning, you are here with us and you know nothing of these realities. Perhaps you've grown up around the church or you are familiar with the word gospel and even the word baptism and even the picture of baptism. But unless what is spoken of in Romans chapter 6 is true of your life, that you have died with Christ. In other words... You have been crucified with Christ, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2. Unless your sin nature has been killed at the cross, your punishment has been taken at the cross, unless in the resurrection of Christ you have received victory in life, then you are outside of the fellowship and the blessings that accompany this reality that Paul speaks of here. So we are going to hear of the power of God through Christ by one who has been immersed in Christ and then we will watch the illustration of that as he's immersed in water. So the command to be immersed in water is to illustrate and depict what has already happened in his heart. This is what happens for all of us as we're baptized as believers. So we have a 
testimony. We have an identification. It's a marker that says, I'm one of the ones who has died with Christ, been been buried with Christ, and who is risen to life in Christ. So it's an opportunity to worship. It should be a glorious reminder for us of what God has done in us as His people. We gather together, we sing songs, we read the Scripture, we fellowship with one another, not because it's convenient, not because we like it, not because it's social and this is our our place, but because we've been made new, we've died, we've been buried, and we've been raised to new life. And so every time we take of the bread and the cup, we're remembering how this happened. And every time we observe and enjoy the baptism of a brother, we're reminded of how this happened. God, in His grace and mercy, breathed life into our dead hearts, opened our blind eyes so that we could see the glory of the One who died at the cross. What is the glory of the one who died at the cross? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 tells us of the glory of the one who died at the cross. For God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? That means that the glory of the one who died at the cross is that the Son of God, sinless in nature and in action, never breaking the law of God, perfectly obeying the commands of God, went to death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2 tells us in obedience to the Father's will. And as He hung on the cross, He received the wrath of His Father, the curse of His Father against sin. My sin. Your sin. And in bearing that sin, He paid the full penalty of death that was required of us. What makes the cross glorious is that there was a perfect lamb slain there. There was a perfect substitute, a vicarious work that was happening there. Someone else was standing in for us. A great exchange was happening so that the sin of our lives was being placed upon Him and He was bearing the wrath of His Father for our sin. When Jesus said, "Why have you forsaken me?" he was not merely addressing the fact that he was hanging on earth and his father was in heaven. He was crying out under the anguish of our curse and the full penalty for our sin. What makes the cross glorious is that that perfect lamb who was slain there, that perfect obedient son who stands in as our substitute was buried. And what makes the cross glorious is what took place three days later. Because He rose again. And in rising again, He conquered death. And He conquered sin's power. The dominion of sin over us has been removed because of the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. So the testimony of baptism is the testimony of those who have had their eyes open to the glories of the cross. Who then have walked away from, turned away from their own way. That's the word repentance in our Bible. Turning away from and turning to Christ. Placing our confidence in Him, God does something unbelievable. He doesn't just transfer our sin 
to His Son. Paul says that by faith, as we see what we cannot, we see spiritually what we cannot see physically, God finishes the transfer. And here's the wonder of newness of life. What happens for us in Christ? What is about to be testified as happening in Brother Phil's life? What we will see illustrated in the waters of baptism in just a few minutes is that as we turn from our own way, our own righteousness, our own goodness, and we place our confidence in the perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ, the transfer is not merely our guilt to Christ so that we're forgiven. It's the transfer of Christ's righteousness to our account. He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So we are not merely forgiven. The picture of baptism, the testimony of baptism, the identification of baptism is not merely forgiven. Forgiven only gets us to neutral. We must be righteous. And our righteousness is the second part of the great exchange because our righteousness is not our own. It's justification, a legal rightness with God because of faith. This is what happens for those who are engulfed in, who are baptized into Christ. This is what has happened in my life. This is what has happened in your life if you're here this morning in Christ. And it changes everything. The new heart has new eyes. The new heart has new ears. The new heart has new power to not sin. The new heart has new power to obey. All because of God's grace, all empowered by God and His victorious work through His Son. So, the message of baptism is one of identification and it is one of testimony. What a glorious testimony is ours. Baptism. The declaration of one that there is in fact newness of life. A substitute person. Perfectly obedient, crushed at the cross. Righteousness transferred from that perfect substitute to our account. Victory over sin and death in a glorious resurrection that promises us, that stands in front of us as we look at our circumstances, as we look at our lives, as we live in this world. All of those truths that wrap up in that resurrection stand in front of us as hope for us, brothers and sisters. And I would be foolish to not say, if you're here and you know nothing of that hope, run to Christ. Look to Christ. Turn from your own way. Cry out for mercy and believe that Christ is the substitute who bore the wrath, whose righteousness can be yours, and whose resurrection assures for all who are in Him victory over death and sin. It's a glorious picture. The immortal, invisible God, only wise, came up with this plan so that we get none of the boasting and He gets all of the glory.